0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that Paul confirms the Genesis account as truth. Today, Pastor Murphy will show us three witnesses that confirm that Genesis is a historical book and the consequences of rejecting this truth.
1: All right, your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We are going to read again from verse 12 of this chapter. We started to deal with the subject um, last Sunday night, and we didn't get to complete it, so we are going to be dealing substantially with the same subject. I I might have to rehash some of the material and I hope you have the patience to endure um, the fact I need to do that otherwise I think you'll lose the continuity of what we began to deal with last week I want to read from Romans verse 12 wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who is a figure of him that was to come? But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, have abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment that was by one to condemnation, Um, But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reign by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin have reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, having said all of that, I now want to go to the book of Romans chapter 5. And I want to point out to you that the Apostle Paul is arguing for the historicity of Genesis. And I want to call three, three witnesses tonight That confirms that Genesis is a historical book. And that the story of Adam and Eve and the fall are historical events. They actually took place. They're not myths. They're not legends. They're not caricatures. They're not poppycock nonsense. These are things that actually really actually happen in time, space, in history. I'll call the witnesses to the stand shortly. Now if you are familiar with the... Book of Deuteronomy. Uh, you know that in the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6, that when it comes to the matter of forensic evidence in the law courts, if you want to verify that something actually did happen, you must have at least a minimum of two or three witnesses. No matter under the Old Testament economy, it could have been settled Legally, unless there were at least two or three witnesses. So when I call to the stand, people that to witness to the historicity of the book of Genesis. uh, If you're following the biblical model, I have no choice but to present at least three credible witnesses to verify that the book of Genesis is authentic and real. And I will take the time tonight to make that assertion that I do have three witnesses. The first witness, of course, I want to draw your attention to is what we have here, the Apostle Paul, in this section. If you read uh, chapter 5 and the passage from verse number 12 on to the end, you'll find that Paul points out eight facts about the book of Genesis. Eight facts. In verse number 14, the Apostle Paul named the first man. He said Adam was the first man. Read the book of Genesis, it's very, very clear that the Bible teaches that Adam was the first man. The Apostle Paul is going to present a case in reference to the book of uh, Genesis to confirm that it is an authentic book and these are historical characters. In verse number 12, Paul says that Adam sinned. Again, I don't have to remind you in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 to 3, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In verse number 12b, uh, Paul says in this passage that Adam's sin brought death. Again, go back to Genesis. Third thing that Paul points out, he wants to be so meticulous and so consistent because Paul's point is that what took place in the book of Genesis actually was a real historical event. So Paul has to align his teaching with what you find in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, verse verse C, Paul points out that Adam's sin was imputed to us. And the Bible makes it quite clear that when Adam sinned, we inherited a sinful nature from Adam. Every single person that followed Adam had this sinful nature. And by the way, it doesn't take you very long in the book of Genesis to show you what that sinful nature means. Because after Adam sinned, he has two sons. One is called Cain and Abel. Now imagine that. You just got mommy and daddy and you got two boys. You own the whole world. But yet there's rivalry. And you wonder, but did they do not come under the same womb? You got kids like that? Man, I got three boys and three of them as, as as different as life and day. Same father, same mom. And that's what the Bible teaches, that you inherit the sin. So exactly after the first sin, you've got this rivalry between because God commends one, the other one gets jealous. And decide the way to get rid of the problem is to get rid of my brother. But wait a minute. If you get rid of your brother, you don't have anybody else with you. Other than your mom and your dad. Who are you going to play with? The stupidity of sin. And like the guy who cuts the limb and he's sitting on. And that's what sin does. And that gives you an idea of what that meant in terms of our sinful nature. That inherited nature. You, you, You wait, Maybe five or six generations down the line you can see it. No, immediately. After Adam sin, it works out in the life of his children. And you don't go very long in the Bible before you find bigamy. Where did that come from? See? And then it doesn't take you long before you come to drunkenness. And then you come to that stage where the Bible says, Every of man's heart was evil, continue. In a short space of time, the world's in chaos. The book of Genesis and the book of Paul aligns with that. As a result of Adam's sin, it was imputed to us. We all inherited a sinful nature. So that's the the fourth thing that Paul talks about. In verse 15, Paul says that Adam's sin was an offense to God. And that's what sin is. Sin is something that we offend God with because we violate And we transgress, we go beyond a commandment. We go beyond what God has stated. When a man sin, it means that we deliberately make a choice to go against what God has ruled. That's why sin is a moral matter. It's not an accident. It involves rebellion. And Paul points that out in verse number 15. He calls it an offense to God. And then when you come down to verse number 16... Paul says that Adam's sin brought judgment on all. And we all know that. Because of Adam's sin, we all come under the judgment of God because we also inherit a sinful nature. And it's very clear as well that when God began to deal with Adam after sin, God judged Adam and judged Eve. He said, you're no longer going to enjoy the goodness that I have. You're going to have to work hard and sweat And you're going to eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Before that, there was nothing that Adam had to do other than take care. But now there's thistles and grass and the whole thing. It's the judgment of God, not only on Adam, but also on planet Earth. Read the book of Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groans. It comes under the judgment of God. And the apostle Paul is drawing that out again. And then the seventh thing that Paul says in verse number 16b, he said it brought condemnation. And we all know that it's more than just physical death. When Adam died, he came under the judgment of God, and it means that we will suffer eternal death at some point in time. So we we suffered condemnation. And then the last thing that Paul talks about in verse number 19, he said the, the nature of Adam's disobedience, he calls it disobedience. The last passage meeting we had, a question was asked. And here was the question. What was the first sin? What was the first sin? And everybody uh, agreed that it was hubris. That's the word that they use. Nice fancy word, but all it means is pride. That's all it means is pride. And true, that's the first sin. The first sin was created and it was it took place in heaven when Satan um, out of his pride and wanted to be like God and ascended to the throne of God. You, you find he's the first Rasta. Five eyes. I will be this. I will be that. I and I will be that <laughs> for of, right? But five different times, um, he said he wanted to be like God and, and and so on. And he will dethrone God and sit in this on his throne. And, and and God. It was pride. And read the book of Ezekiel and the book of uh, and the book of uh, Isaiah. Uh, he talks about the anointed carb that you were the embodiment of beauty until iniquity was found in you. Pride was found in you. That's the first sin that's the first sin of the devil but the first sin of man is not pride it's disobedience it's disobedience and that's why Paul talks in this particular passage he doesn't talk about Adam's pride he talks about Adam's disobedience he's sticking close to the Genesis record because the apostle Paul wants us to understand that when we when we go to Genesis chapter 1 to 3 Paul wants you to know it's a historical document what took place was historical events and Paul is going point by point Nine times he makes a reference to that incident in the book of Genesis. Not accident, not coincidental. It's a deliberate act on Paul's part to confirm the historicity of the book of Genesis. What is uh, also um, interesting that when you come to um, the Paul's writings, you also find that this is not the first time the Apostle Paul affirms the historicity of Genesis. If you look with me for just a moment at Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, you'll find that the Apostle Paul again confirms this historical fact about Adam in the book of Genesis. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, Paul says, For in Adam all died. So not only here in the book of Romans, in his other epistles, the Apostle Paul asserts and affirms that the book of Genesis is a historical book. The Apostle Paul will not allow the church to dilly-dally and surrender the the book of Genesis. Because Paul knows the full consequences. And I'll talk to that when we come to a close. What are the consequences of turning away from the book of Genesis and turning our backs on the first three chapters? So in Corinthians chapter 12 verse 22, Paul makes the same assertion. If you look also at Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45. he, He says that Adam was the first man in that passage. Again, he's asserting Adam was a historical person. So he got it in Romans, but it's not a Freudian slip that he put in Romans. He also have it in the book of, of Corinthians because what Paul is discussing about the resurrection, etc. Then we find another time that Paul makes a reference to the historicity of, of, of uh, Adam and Eve and uh, the Genesis story. You find it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, Adam was first formed. Again, this is an assertion. You know, you, you wonder why Paul makes those kind of statements. In the providence of God, God knew that the great attack in the end times would be this great book. He, he planned way ahead of time. That this doctrine, this truth about the history of Adam would be confirmed in scripture again and again. And we can't escape the reality that we're dealing with history. He anticipated what would happen. And so you find in Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he says Adam was the first man formed. Again, where do you get that from? Paul, where do you get it from? Well, it's in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. This is Paul's conviction that this book is true. And then the other reference um, that Paul gives is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, when he says Adam was not deceived. But the one was deceived first. How did you know that, Paul? See, Well, Paul was privy to the same knowledge that you have. Paul knew Genesis chapter 1 to 3. And he would have had the Jewish translation of the Bible. He would have had that. So Paul would have known that that is what Genesis said. And that's why Paul can say that he was with but not Adam. See? Again, you cannot read Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And think it's a mere coincidence that Paul will bring these things into the scriptures. He's witnessing to the truth of the historicity of the book of Genesis. Now I want to call witness number two to the stand for just a moment. And what an incredible witness this is, because it is what we have here is something that is purely coincidental, and there's no collusion between Paul and this person. Could never be. No collusion. See. Let me show you another passage of scripture that might shock you. Another witness to the Genesis story. Look at Jude chapter 4. There's only one chapter. Jude verse 14. You know, I don't think Jude would have understood exactly what his affirmation means in this time in which we live. Where the book of Genesis is under such severe attack. I don't think Jude could ever conceive that the witness of his book would support The the, the Genesis account, but look what it says in Jude, verse fourteen, and Enoch, also the what, the seven from who? There is it again. See. Now, if Adam was not a historical person, how could Enoch be the seven from him? You can get children from a myth, you can get babies from a myth, from a legend, from folklore. But look, no, just coincidentally, he's dealing with these false prophets. And he's talking about the ungodliness that uh, Enoch, being a prophet, speaks about God judging the ungodly with their ungodly ways. And just coincidentally, he just mentions Enoch. Why did I say Enoch and leave nothing out? Enoch, the seventh from Adam. See? Where do you get that from? Go back to the book of Genesis, and you'll see that Enoch it is the seventh from Adam. See? How did he know that, Jude? Because he was exposed to the same information you had, he knew the book of Genesis. So indirectly, coincidentally, by no major plan on his own, not understanding the times in which we live, again, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the of God, he knew that we would need support for time like this. And therefore, he guides Jude in his writing. And Jude is about to put down Enoch. And God said, no, the seventh from Adam, Enoch. Because God knows this will be the attack that we we'll face today, see. That's the second witness that we call your attention to. The Apostle Paul in Romans, in Corinthians, in First Timothy. And Jude in Jude uh, 14. But of all the witnesses... That authenticate the book of Genesis. And of all the witnesses that vindicate Genesis chapter 1 to 3. There is no greater witness than this last one. And you find that in Matthew chapter 19. Verse 4 and 5. And of course Matthew is the gospel. And the gospel is the story, the glad tidings, the good news about Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 to 5, we read these words. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And then he goes on and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be twain and one. Where do you find that, sir? Genesis chapter 2. See. Who is the one that bears witness to this great book? It is none other than God's son, Jesus Christ. The supreme witness. And so here we have in this chapter that Christ affirms the historicity of those events. That God in the beginning made male and female and that God created marriage and even the specific words that God uttered are repeated here by Matthew. But look also in Mark chapter 10. And verse number six. In Mark chapter 10, verse number six, verse five says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them what? Male and female. Where did he get that from? See? Again, the book of Genesis. My point is this. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one of impeccable character, the God-man, if he witnesses to the book of Genesis and says this is what actually literally occurred, it was a historical event, there could only be an ignoramus that would stand up and say that it didn't happen. So we have the classic witness and testimony of Jesus Christ himself uh, bearing witness to the book of Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Now, the second thing I want to call your attention to is this. What is the wreckage that results when we reject the Genesis of the Kong and we don't believe in the history of the book of Genesis? What happens? How, how does it affect us? You know, we got some foolish Christians. And I say foolish, I, I mean this seriously. They don't understand the ramifications of taking certain positions. And I'm amazed at the stupidity of some believers. It's very crass for any Christian to say, well, it doesn't matter if Genesis 1-3 to is an allegory or not. It does matter. It either was a historical event or it was not. And if you say it's not a historical event, it means that Paul is wrong, Jude is wrong, and Christ is wrong. So where does that leave you? To make such denials and to make such charges put you in the realm, not of the saved, but of the damned. See? So when people say it doesn't matter whether these three chapters are correct or not, whether they're allegorical or historical, they're missing the whole point. It's a denial of the testimony, the witness of these three great characters and the supreme character being Christ. I want to point out now, what it, what, what's the wreckage? Not only the witness, but what's the wreckage? when we uh, do not embrace these chapters as, his, as historical. Number one, the first thing I would like to say is that when we deny the first three chapters of the Bible and we say that they're not historical, they're just merely allegorical events and, and so on and so forth, I would like to say that the first thing you do is that you repudiate biblical authority. I repeat, you repudiate biblical authority. You, when you say those kind of statements you destroy the credibility of the Bible and the veracity of the Bible. You destroy this book and you give no particular basis on which to ground your faith in. You are charged with the Bible with error. And now when you charge the Bible with error, you no longer have an infallible, inerrant Bible. You have a Bible that is a a, a mixture, a hodgepodge of error and truth. The problem is, if it is error and truth, can you tell me who decides what is truth (coughs) and what is error? So we're in a dilemma now. And by the way, that's the the problem we have when we're dealing with the rasters. If you ever talk to a raster, he has what I call a butterfly hermeneutics. He begins talking to you on a certain subject and then he flies off over here. And what he says over here doesn't make any sense at all what's connected over here. He will tell you he believed it in the Psalms, but he doesn't believe in other things in the Bible. My question is, why do you believe in the Psalms then? How do you know that what you believe in the Psalms is correct? So he has no answers, because he has no absolute truth. And when we do this with the book of Genesis, all we end up is really destroying biblical authority. We no longer have an inerrant, infallible word and we don't have an inspired book any longer we have a book that's a concoction a mixture of that which is inspired and that which is human and we become the authorities now to decide what is correct and what is not correct so I find something I like I say that's God's word you find something you like say that's God's word we end up with total confusion the authority of the scripture is gone I don't know if you would agree with me on this but this is what is going on and going on in the current world the churches today are so confused about the Bible and what to believe that the world no longer thinks we're credible. You know why? They lump all of us together. They call us the church. So when you got the Anglican church and the Methodist church ordaining lesbians and homosexuals, and then I take a firm stand against lesbians and homosexuals, the world is confused. And they use the fact that they support it to call my position hate crime, because now I speak out against it. If they did not have the support of these other groups, and we all held to the biblical truth, there would be no prior problem. But now it's a hate crime for me to stand in the pulpit and say that that is wrong and that is wrong. And they use the same testimony of the other churches and their practices to condemn me. And the world is in the state of confusion because the church is confused. It has moved away from biblical authority. And that's when we take the book of Genesis and we go away from the book of Genesis. Could I I use an illustration again? Why do you think there's gender confusion? Why do you think there's gender confusion even in the church? There's no gender confusion in the Bible. God made them male and female. So when you're born, you're born male or female. You don't decide what sex you are, what gender you are. But the problem is now you have got other churches that believe in this matter and they begin to talk about this and agree to it. So when I stand up and I begin to condemn these things, now they throw it back at me because, you know, no authority. If we're going to be consistent and we're going to have a voice in this world that they're going to listen to us because we have absolute truth and we believe the Bible for what it says. See? We can't surrender the passage like Genesis chapter 1 to 3. We do that and we don't have any biblical authority. The second thing I would like to say to you that happens to us when we surrender Genesis 1 to 3 is that we impugn the integrity and the credibility of Christ. Could I say this to you? If Christ lied or Christ was wrong about anything he ever said, he's not God. He's not God's son. He's just an ordinary man. So, I bring down Christ to the level of humanity because I, I charge him with error. When he said that there was an Adam and an Eve, and that God made him male and female, and that God said a man should leave his, house, his uh, a woman should leave her, her, her father's house, and go to be with her husband. If that's not true, the whole character of Christ is impugned, and his whole credibility is destroyed. So, when you think, that surrendering the book of Genesis have no consequences. I would ask you to rethink that, sir. And I agree with Josh McDowell that when it comes to Christ, there are only three options. He said, Christ could not have claimed the things that he claimed and done the things that he did if he is either one of three things. Paul, uh, Josh said he's either a liar because he claimed to be God's son, Or he's a lunatic because only a madman will claim to be God's son. Or he said the other one is, you've got to admit he's Lord. Those are the options. So when it comes to Genesis chapter 3, you're either saying he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's no other options. So the wreckage is not only the repudiation of biblical authority, is also impugning the character and the integrity and the credibility of Christ. You destroy the Bible and you destroy Christ. And here's the third one. You destroy the whole biblical doctrine of salvation. I repeat, you completely demolish the whole biblical doctrine because go through Romans chapter 5 and Paul points out very meticulously Adam is a federal head, Christ is a new federal head. Adam disobeyed, Christ was obeyed. Christ brought righteousness, Adam brought condemnation. Christ brought life, Adam brought death. He contrasts the two. And the whole passage has to do with the salvation that God offers to the believer. So when you say there's no Adam, hey, there's no salvation either. Because there's no Adam, there's no need for salvation. There's no need for Christ. So when people say, it doesn't really matter, pastor, whether it's an allegory or not, I say, sir, you're not thinking clearly. You're not understanding the ramifications. So if we have a mythological Adam, we have a mythological Christ. If we have a mythological fall, we have a mythological salvation. I don't think that you fully understand how important what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this passage. And if you are saying that these things didn't happen and there was no Adam, it means that you don't understand what happened to man. You don't understand our relationship to Adam's fall. And you don't understand Christ's relationship to us and the undoing of what happened in Adam's life what I'm saying to you is you're still lost in your sin you're damned if you surrender the first three chapters of of the Bible the pastor shouldn't say that well I ask you what else am I to say when you come to a chapter like this where Paul is making it very clear that our whole salvation is wrapped up on what took place in the Garden of Eden and how Christ came to undo everything and to neutralize and be an antidote to all of those things it's not a small matter my dear friend Uh, When you come to a passage like this, you've got to either accept it or you've got to reject it. So this is Paul's teaching on this matter. He talks about the reality of sin. He talks the universality of death. But then he talks about the historicity of Christ. And then what he will deal with next to show you is the sufficiency of Christ to cancel out everything that happened in Adam. And Paul will go through in detail Everything Adam did, you check that. Christ did the way with that. He's going to point out the sufficiency of Christ in these matters. So I want to ask you tonight, have you fully understood the importance of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis? The Apostle Paul spends a whole section dealing fairly exhaustively with this matter. And I I, I don't think the Apostle Paul understood the battle that we would be in today. But I believe in the providence of God, he understood the great conflict we would have. That the brutal attack on this book, that we would need the supporting evidence to confirm that we have not followed cunningly the Divine Fables, but we have followed the historical facts of the Bible. And God made sure that he provided the three witnesses that are required, and the premier witness of all is Jesus Christ. So if we don't take the Bible, we destroy the authority of scripture. We take the credibility of Christ and the authority of Christ and we totally destroy it. But above all else, we completely obliterate the whole doctrine of salvation. The whole thing topples. Because everything that Paul teaches, the base is the book of Genesis. And when the base is removed, the whole superstructure collapses. That is how important the book of Genesis is to us. I want to encourage you as a believer to spend some time going through the book and don't race through it impetuously because you want to say that you read your five verses and you read your two chapters for the day and therefore it will keep the devil away. You know. No, no, no. Spend some time understanding the ramifications of what you're reading. What does this mean? See? And increasingly I think and you go to your witness and you start to deal with people You'll understand that we do in a biblical illiterate generation. And we're going to have to call them back to truth again and again and again. This past week, I went to visit a lady, as I told the church. I spoke to her for over three hours from 4.30 until 7 o'clock. What amazed me about her is this. And the husband, by the way, what amazed me about him is that he can tell me that all of his family were Christians. Uh, she's an Anglican for all these years. She's in her 60s, maybe 65. I think she told me in 66. But as I began to, to talk to her because she, she called in about the man I went to see her. She doesn't understand a thing about sin. She doesn't understand a thing about salvation. Nothing at all. And I said to her, Madam, you realize you're 60, I don't know if you're 65. Said, you, you realize that you're going to die shortly? And you don't even know where you're going. You haven't even thought about where you're going. How to get there. Of course she'd been living in England all of her life. At the time her, her, her husband. I think he left. Then uh, he was like 12. So he'd been living in England all these years. Going to the Anglican church all these years. But ain't got any clue at all. About salvation. But you know a lot of people and think like that. Do you know that? Look I go to houses sometimes I knock and I want to come and talk and the, the, the most belligerent people i ever met are religious people.
0: Anyone join your church?
1: I said man I'm going to come to talk to you about church. You know. I got my church. What's your church? Well, unless you tell me her church. Then it's always these, these big churches. When you ask them, are you saved? What do you mean by saved? I say, are you born again? What do you mean by being born again? I go to church. I belong to the church. God help us. See? And that is why we come to a passage Genesis and become a Catholic. Romans chapter number five. And we begin to understand that the Bible explains this whole thing again so that people will be clear on this matter. I want to um, continue studying this book with me. And I know I've taken a long time with this, but I think they begin to I hope you begin to grasp some of what Paul is saying, and, and uh, it's just fascinating how he is so meticulous that he goes through detail, and sometimes you, you don't understand that that's what he's giving you detail and detail. It's only when you begin one, two, three, four, nine times you begin to understand. But wait a minute, did Paul have the book of Genesis open when he was writing this chapter? This is God's book. Genesis chapter 3 is part of that book. It's historically something that actually happened. And it's all connected with the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. Let's hold to this truth and never ever surrender or be stampeded. Into holy, into some evolutionary teaching or doctrine. Because of what these people assert. Get back to Genesis as you hear the the program, Back to Genesis, that's where we get. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the Apostle Paul's careful exposition and careful explanation of what really took place and how we came to the condition in which we're in. Oh Lord, our students are in schools that are being taught that the Bible is just myth, it's just a legend. The book of Genesis is just an allegory. It didn't really happen. These are things that are bombarding the minds of our young people because they're being taught these things. This is why we need to get the word of God out and the truth of God out to counteract this poison that has pervaded the minds of so many young people. We ask you tonight to take the word that we have just expounded and explained Help us to understand the credible witnesses that stand in the docks and give forensic evidence that this is a historical fact. These did happen. We cannot impugn any of their characters, whether it be Jude, whether it be Paul, certainly we cannot impugn the character of Christ. These are witnesses of the highest caliber. But then Lord help us to understand the full ramification, the wreckage that comes. The destruction of biblical authority. The impugning of the character and the integrity of Christ and certainly his deity. But then not only that Lord, the complete demolition of the whole biblical doctrine of salvation. It's all gone. Sent into smitterings, The moment we have doubts and we refuse to believe. That Genesis is a historical book that gives historical events. Adam was a real person. It was real sin. Death is real. Condemnation is real. Judgment is real. But thankfully also Christ is real. Oh Father, help us as your people to hold to these truths and never ever surrender them even at the cost of our lives for the defense of the gospel fortify us and prepare us for the battle ahead because it's going to be fierce and only those who really grasp the truth of scripture will be able to stand in that day and take a position for truth else others are going to surrender because they're not grounded in the word of God bless us as we leave here help us to meditate on these things and help us to see in the midst of them all the wisdom of God the preparation of his church for the end times as it faces the most brutal attack and the first book that once surrendered topples everything else thank you oh God for your wisdom thank you for giving us this great book and thank you for the apostle Paul who understood the need for certain these things that the church would need them and need them especially in the end times these things in Christ's
0: name. Amen. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us the next thought from this final section of Chapter 5, The Sufficiency of Christ. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.